The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 47, to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Amen. The man is right. Oh. Okay, eight verses today. Our sermon verses are 30, Exodus 38, 1 through 8. This is entitled, Justified and Sanctified Before Our God. Verse 1, he made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length and five cubits its width. It was square and its height was three cubits. He made its horns on its four corners. The horns were of one piece with it and he overlaid it with bronze. He made all the utensils for the altar. The pans, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the fire pans, all its utensils he made of bronze. And he made the grate of bronze network for the altar under its rim midway from the bottom. He cast four rings for the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. Then he put the poles into the rings on the sides of the altar with which to bear it. He made the altar hollow with boards. He made the laver of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Just so you know, Bob has to leave a little early today, and I told him that uh, when he leaves, he's got to get up and say, I can't take this anymore, and walk out. So when you hear that, you'll know that that was pre-planned. On the day that I typed this particular sermon, it was a sad day in my life. It was 10 October of 2016. I received word that a friend of mine had died. Jeff loved the Lord desperately, and he often spoke to others about him. He had a group on Facebook called Homeward Bound, where he would post happy messages about Christ. When I traveled to 50 states in 2010, I got to meet him personally, and we shared a few hours together at a marvelous Greek restaurant. He also came to Florida to visit for a few days sometime after that. Jeff was saved by the Lord, and he loved the Lord, but he also struggled with life. He had addictions that he couldn't overcome. He was often depressed, and he would email asking for prayer. Charlie, I'm in a low spot right now. We would pray, and I carried him with me often in my heart during these times. He would also have extreme highs, and he never failed to thank the Lord for them. He loved his family, he cherished his friends, and he connected me with more Facebook friends than any other person I know. He was always sending me a new friend request to approve. I've come to cherish many of those people. He had the knack of knowing how to fit the right people together. Well, my friend Jeff is no longer homeward bound. He has arrived at his final destiny, there to live in perfect 
contentment and peace with his Lord. Today, we're going to look at two different pieces of tabernacle furniture that describe two different functions in the process of redemption. We've already seen what they picture, and so we will look deeper into how these pictures are actually realized in the work of Christ in and for us. The first is the altar of burnt offering, and it looks at the process of justification. The second is the bronze laver, and it looks to the process of sanctification. Jeff got the first process settled at the foot of the cross. He was pardoned for the sins of his life once and for all through the work of Jesus Christ. Jeff struggled with the second process. He would go in fits and starts through cycles of sanctification and then falling back into the world. Thank God that the race is not up to us to complete. The sanctification of this life is one which keeps us healthy and in a right walk towards Christ. The full and final sanctification, however, comes solely through the work of the Lord. We'll see this as we go along today. But I cannot stress to you enough the importance of these two processes. Our text verse comes from Romans chapter 8. It's verses 37 through 39. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To stand justified before the Lord means that we are free from condemnation. We have overcome, and we are guaranteed a place at the heavenly banquet which he has prepared for the redeemed of the Lord. To be sanctified in its fullest sense is something that is accomplished the very moment that we were justified. We are made acceptable to God at that time. However, to be sanctified in this life is something that we need to pursue from day to day and even moment by moment. Like I said, Jeff struggled with all this particular aspect of his walk, but we all do to some extent. If we can just look beyond the pains, the trials, and the struggles, and let the word dwell richly in us, then the sanctification process is a lot easier. The more we have the word in us, the less likely we are to fall back into old ways. Like a tap that must be opened in order to receive the waters, our growth in the Lord will only come through receiving the waters that he provides. And that tap ain't opening itself. The book is there, and the amount of dust on top of it will tell you how long it's been since you opened it up. And once it's open, the amount of notes in it, whether there are many or few dog ears in it, and the number of pages which are falling out of it are indications as to how seriously you take it to heart. I am quite certain that Jeff's Bible was well-worn and marked up, but I think that at times the dust started to pile up on it as well. Those are certainly the times that he would call or he would email and tell me that things weren't going so well. Don't squander your time and don't ever feel that you can make it without this precious gift of God. Trust this word, rely on this word, and let this word fill your heart and soul in good times and especially in bad times. Pursue the word and let it dwell richly in your soul at all times. This is what the Lord would ask of you, and this is the lesson that is found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is justification. It's verses 1 through 7. We'll read those verses again. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length, and five cubits its width. 
It was square, and its height was three cubits. He made its horns on its four corners. The horns were of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with bronze. He made all the utensils for the altar, the pans, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the fire pans. All its utensils he made of bronze, and he made a grate of bronze network for the altar under its rim midway from the bottom. He cast four rings for the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles, and he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. Then he put the poles into the rings on the sides of the altar with which to bear it. He made the altar hollow with boards. The concept of justification before God is given its greatest explanation to us from the hand of Paul in the book of Romans. There is a place where man's sins are atoned for. It is where the penalty for sin is paid. In the economy of the law of Moses, that took place at the altar of burnt offering. Man would come before the Lord. He'd place his hands upon an innocent animal, which would then be slaughtered and burnt up on the altar. In this, an innocent would take the place of the guilty. The sin would be transferred to the innocent, and the sinner was considered at least temporarily justified before God. The penalty for his sin had been paid, and it was thus removed. This was the standard for all of Israel throughout all of the time of the law, and of course, there was much more involved in this process. There were several types of sacrifices, and there were certain days where more was done than on other days, such as on the Day of Atonement. But the common theme was that a substitute died in place of the guilty. As we saw in the giving of the instructions for the altar described here, every single detail pointed to Christ. Thus, in the study of the altar, both its construction and its use, we find foreshadowings of the marvel to come. Concerning the concept of being justified before God, it is all here in those types and shadows. Paul speaks of what it means to be justified in God's sight in Romans chapter 2. He says, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. We are told that if one sins under the law, he will be judged by the law. Only a person who actually does the law, meaning adhering to it perfectly, will be justified. But Paul gives us an all-encompassing statement in Romans chapter 3. Here's what he says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. How can it be that only the doers of the law will be justified, and yet, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight? How can that be? It is because nobody is able to live out the law which is written. It is an impossible task, Thus, within the law itself, there was a way given to obtain mercy from violations of the law. It was found in the sacrifices of the law itself, highlighted by the Day of Atonement sacrifices. Without them, man would stand guilty before God, but because of them, man could be pardoned for yet another year. But the truth then follows that the removal of sin was actually only temporary, If sacrifices needed to be repeated year after year, then it means that there was a constant reminder of sin. And this is explained in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, For the law, 
having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. This is why Paul says that by the law, no flesh will be justified in the sight of God. There was only a temporary stay of God's wrath, not a permanent taking away of sin. However, there is good news, marvelous news for us. This altar and its associated sacrifices was only a temporary fixture which was intended to both picture and lead us to an understanding of the greater work of Christ. Paul continues to explain this in Romans chapter 3. He says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are told here that the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. In other words, this righteousness is one which is not at all associated with the law, meaning deeds of the law. He even tells us that the law itself, along with its prophets, bear witness to this. Now, how can we know what is witnessed unless we study it? Anybody? Paul's words have to be rooted in something or they are meaningless. This is why we studied the law. This is why we started in Genesis and we're going to keep on going through the law is because unless we know what the law says, we cannot fully comprehend what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now I want to ask you, show me a sign of hands. Has anybody here learned anything out of the law of Moses so far? Okay, we've learned something and we continue to learn and we see pictures of Christ. We see so much information this is why we study the law. It is because in understanding the law, we can then appreciate the absolute marvel of what Christ has done for us. We were just told that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. It is the law which gives us the knowledge of sin. Without a law, there is no law to break. If there were no legal speed limit, then we could drive at any speed that we wanted to. But as soon as someone passes that dang law which restricts us to 70 miles an hour out on I-75, we will become lawbreakers when we drive at 71 or higher. Likewise, the law gives us the knowledge of sin, but it does nothing to take away the guilt. When the law is broken, it is broken. We can pay the fine, but the infraction remains a permanent part of our history. Therefore, there must be something which comes apart from the law to remove our guilt, or we will always have that guilt in memory. In the United States, we have a provision which actually fits this need quite well. It is called the pardon. When the president pardons a person, their record is wiped clean. It is as if the law was never broken. It can never be brought up again, and it is to be released from all record and memory. This is a marvelous type of what occurs for the believer in Jesus Christ. Paul continues with the good news in Romans chapter 3. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, 
God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The Day of Atonement was a day of faith in the provision of God for another year. Now, in fulfillment of what that day signified, we see Christ Jesus. He was set forth as a propitiation by his blood. The animal that was slaughtered at the altar had its blood carried into the Holy of Holies where it was sprinkled before the Lord and on the mercy seat. Paul says that Christ is the mercy seat. Here he uses the word hilasterion. It is the same word as is found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the mercy seat itself. Christ is our place of propitiation and restoration. Again, this is explained in Hebrews chapter 9. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, that over there, everything about it is a copy of what is actually happening in heaven. They're not copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he then would have to suffer, suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What we're being told is that each of these articles was only a copy of something which heaven requires for our justification before God, and that Christ is the fulfillment of those things. He came under the law. He fulfilled the law and then put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Think of it. If he never sinned under the law, then the law has no power to condemn him. And so in dying under this law, but without violating it, the law through him is finished. Hence, his final gasping words of his torturous time on Calvary's cross, tetelestai, it is finished. In Greek, that is in the perfect tense. It is finished completely and absolutely. Unlike the sacrifices of the altar, which had to be repeated again and again and again, this was a one-time and for all-time thing. But before the reality came the types and the shadows. What God has done in Christ is first hinted at in these objects which were instructed by the Lord through Moses and which are now being carefully and meticulously made by Bezalel and those who were appointed under him. Now arises a question for us to consider. The people agreed to the law which was presented by the Lord. They placed themselves under both its protection and its penalties. Within the law, God provided them a means of being forgiven for violations of the law, right? If they came forward and acknowledged those violations, then it means that they knew that they were guilty before the law. Yes, otherwise they would have no need to come forward. And so if they came forward and received God's needed mercy for the forgiveness of their sins, then could they turn around and boast about their forgiven state? Well, technically they could, but it would be vain boasting. Being granted mercy implies that they simply did not receive what was justly deserved. They were guilty before the law, and their guilt was mercifully transferred to an innocent. As this was a temporary thing and only given in anticipation of Christ to come, Paul asks a question for us, and then he follows up by answering it. Here's what he asks in Romans 3.27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded, he says. By what law? Of works? 
No, but by the law of faith. If someone perfectly lived out the law, they wouldn't need to come and ask for mercy. Therefore, boasting is excluded. If we have faith that Christ died for us, it means that we needed him to die for us. How can we boast in ourselves concerning what he has done? Rather, we are to boast in him for what he has done. This is what it means to be justified before God. All boasting is set aside except for that boasting which is in the Lord. This is what the people are being taught in this marvelous piece of shittim wood and bronze. And this is what we are taught as we carefully and meticulously wind our way through the pages of Scripture. We are coming back to God through the work of another, through the work of God in Christ. Paul sums up the transaction here, pictured by this ancient wooden box, which was lavishly covered in bronze. He says in Romans 3, 28 and 29, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified apart from deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The law was given to Israel, the Jewish people, but there is one God who created all people. The people outside of the covenant required justification from God, and the people inside of the covenant required the same justification. The badge of circumcision did not nullify their need for justification. It highlighted it. And so both Jew and Gentile must come to God in the same manner, by faith in the work of a substitute. Only in this vicarious act can we stand justified before God. And so Paul's final question and explanatory response of chapter 3 of Romans is given for us to consider. Here's what he says in verse 30. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, he says, we establish the law. What does it mean that we establish the law? It is that we acknowledge that the law exists, that it had power over us, and that we had no ability to meet its precepts. However, we further establish that Christ could and did. He lived out the law and died in fulfillment of that same law, as is pictured in the sacrifices which were made at this very altar that Bezalel is so faithfully constructing for the people of Israel. Thus, by faith in what he has done, we establish the law. We acknowledge our guilt before God, place our hands on the innocent, and the transfer is made from imperfect us to our perfect substitute. In this act, pictured by this transfer at the altar, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul will go on speaking of the process of justification throughout the book of Romans and throughout the rest of his writings as well. We have simply taken a very short trip through a long and detailed process which involves the most serious of contemplation and careful consideration. This was the intent of presenting Israel with these implements, rituals, and practices. And yet, they failed to come to an understanding of what God was trying to show them. Even in the coming of Christ, they rejected him and considered their own righteousness before God as an inherent righteousness. They failed to see that the animals which died when their hands were placed on its head meant that they were not righteous, but unrighteous. The sacrifices were simply an act of going through the motions. Isaiah explained this to them, as did many of the prophets of old. But their eyes were glazed over and their ears were made dull. 
Here is how Isaiah explained it to him right at the beginning of his writings. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. Just a few verses later, the Lord calls out for them to reason things through. If they failed to do so, there would be consequences. Here's what he says. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If they who had these articles and rights before their very eyes failed to make the necessary connection to a right standing with God, how much less likely are we to do so unless we pay heed to the word which has been given to us? Don't ever assume that because you belong to a certain church or because you have done certain things or even that because you are of a particular blood line that you have somehow merited God's favor. That is a crucial mistake which only removes a person further from their creator. Only by faith in what Jesus Christ did can we stand justified before our glorious God. In our Thursday night Bible studies right now, we're going through the book of Romans. It's a long, detailed, and intricate book of explanation concerning these things. And I would recommend that you put your best foot forward and join us for that marvelous trip each week. You can do it here in church. You can do it online. You can watch streaming online or you can watch it on YouTube. All of this is made available to you so that you can understand what justification means and why we're looking at a bronze altar made of shittim wood from thousands and thousands of years ago and how it points to Jesus Christ. All of it is relevant, every single detail, because it points to our status before God. Justified, free from sin, released from all guilt. Justified in Christ, my pardon is won. Through his life and death, when his precious blood was spilt, I am reconciled to my God. The work is done. Oh, that Christ would take the place for someone like me. What manner of love would bring this about? There he hung on the cross of Calvary until those final words he did breathe out. It is finished. The price has been paid for all who will place their sins at the foot of this cross. What a most exceptional trade. His righteousness is gain, my sin, and guilt as loss. Our second thought today is sanctification. It's verse 8. Verse 8 says, He made the laver of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Like justification, sanctification is explained to us in detail in the New Testament. The bronze laver, though lacking in any significant detail, is the implement which pictures our process of sanctification. Something is added into the details here that was not included in the details that the Lord gave to Moses on the mountain. It is that the laver was made from the bronze mirrors of the serving women. It is a detail which has great significance, and yet Bezalel probably never gave it a second thought. But the Lord specifically included that information for us to consider and, pun intended, to reflect upon. That is exactly what a mirror is. It is something which reflects who we are. We reflect on what we look like, and then we work to improve the shabby figure which we see, adjusting ourselves until we look the very best that we can. That is what the process of sanctification is for, to mold us into an image other than the one that we started out as. 
As fallen, fallible sons and daughters of Adam, we have flaws and we have imperfections which are displeasing to the Lord. We were born that way, and we often only make things worse as we go from bad decision to bad decision. We wind up as vessels which are holy and completely unacceptable to God. Here's how Paul describes us when we come to this state. He says, do you not know that the, these verses right here are the verses that brought me to the, to the Lord, standing in that church or that uh, store that I owned right down in Gulfgate Avenue, right here, two, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. I read this and I said, I need Jesus. Do you not understand that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. This is a real problem because even though this seems horrible in the extreme, it pretty much covers all of us in one way or another. God looks at us based on intent. Coveting is something that happens inside of us. Nobody else may even know that we are coveting, but God does. I dare say that there isn't a person here who hasn't coveted something in his or her life. We may or may not have done many of the things on this list, but we've all done some of them. But through the process of coming to Christ, we are forgiven of sin's penalty, and we receive the pardon which he purchased for us. Along with that comes something more something which we experience at least positionally. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. And such were some of you. Man, I read that and I said, that's me. And now he's giving me good news. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Christ's shed blood washes us from these things. And we stand not only justified, but sanctified. As I said, this is a positional sanctification. It is what allows us to immediately come into God's presence. Should we call on Jesus and die that same day, we would be considered acceptable to God because of what Jesus did for us. Paul reiterates this type of sanctification in Ephesians chapter 5. There he equates Christ's sacrifice of himself directly with our sanctification. Here's what he says. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. It is Christ and Christ alone who sanctifies us and makes us acceptable before God the Father. Through him, all past defilement is washed away. The things of the past are gone, and in Christ all things are made new clean and presentable to our Heavenly Father. But there is also another type of sanctification which the Bible speaks of. This is also what is pictured in the bronze laver. The priests would come to this laver to wash at certain times and before doing certain things. This instructed them that even though they were ordained as priests and acceptable to God to conduct their priestly duties, they still needed to purify themselves in the presence of the perfectly holy Lord. In the New Testament, we are called a kingdom of priests, and we're expected to perform our priestly duties properly and with a sense of purity, just as Christ did. Paul gives us an insight into this process of sanctification in 2 Timothy chapter 2. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. 
It should be pretty obvious by evaluating ourselves that even after we call on Christ, we have a long way to go as living in the manner that the Bible expects of us. Some of us never progress in this way. Others are full steam ahead, living out the world and growing in holiness before the Lord. But even those who are ever striving forward still pick up the dirt of the world. None of us are exempt from this. And so we are to come to the laver and to wash ourselves. The laver is the word of God, which is being referred to. We read the word, we apply it to our lives, and we are purified by the water. This most precious gift of all is given to us to lead us into all righteousness, to purify us in our life's walk, and to make us acceptable vessels useful for the master. And yet, Paul tells us elsewhere that it is God who is the one who sanctifies us. He said this in his first letter to the Thessalonians. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet there is more. The mystery is further explained by Paul in his second letter to the Thessalonians. He says, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. It is the third member of the Trinity, God's precious Holy Spirit, who is behind the process of sanctification. But how do we tie these things together so that they make any sense? One, we're told that we are to cleanse ourselves in order to be sanctified, and yet two, we are told that God is the one who sanctifies us in this manner. And more specifically, three, it is the Spirit of God who does it. How do we reconcile these verses so that they make sense? The answer is that in our sanctification, we passively receive from the Spirit as we actively cleanse ourselves. In the tabernacle and at the temple, the priests would go to the laver, they'd open the spigot, and they would receive the water for cleansing of their physical bodies. The priests actively did something, and the water passively passed to them. And yet, it is the water which was used to cleanse them. In our lives, if we are willing to go to what the laver and its water picture, we will receive sanctification and cleansing. The water is the Word of God, the Holy Bible. It is given to us by inspiration of the Spirit. We are, when we go to the Word, washed and cleansed. We actively pursue the Word and we passively receive the Spirit. And yet it is the Spirit which cleanses us. There's a synergism which cannot be denied in this process just as there is a synergism in our justification. On the Day of Atonement, the people had to actively come to confess their sins. But as we saw, they could not boast in that. It would be utterly foolish to boast in receiving forgiveness for sins that we had just confessed and committed. Likewise, in Christ, we must come to Him in order to be saved. But in coming to Him, we are saved by Him. There is a synergism involved in the process. In the same manner, we must come to the Word in order to be sanctified. When we receive what it says, and when we apply it to our lives, we are sanctified. It is an immensely sad thing to contemplate, but the water is right there if we desire it. The Word is written. It was divinely inspired by the Spirit to lead us into all righteousness. Its precepts are available to any and to all who will simply pick it up and read it. And the yielding of our lives to it will bring us back into a holy and right standing with our Heavenly Father. And yet so few people avail themselves of this fount of spiritual blessing. 
Bezalel's hands fashioned this laver with skill and with care from the mirrors of the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. God fashioned the Bible as if from the mirror of his perfection through holy men of God selected by him. When people looked at the bronze laver, they would remember the story of where it came from. When we look at the Bible, we are to likewise remember where it came from. When the priests opened the spigot, they would feel the refreshing water purifying them for their service to the Lord. When we as priests of the Lord open the Bible, we should naturally expect the same as it purifies us for our acceptable service to the Lord. How is it that we can be sanctified? Paul sums up the thought so well with these words from Colossians chapter 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In doing these things, we will keep ourselves from temptations. We will be kept from falling into evil practices. We will stay on the right path and we will be able to resist the devil. He's there. He's setting snares for us each and every day. But in knowing the word and having it dwell richly in us, those traps will be evident long before they draw near to us. This is the power of the word of God to affect our lives. Like the water of the labor, its contents are able to cleanse us fully. This is why Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. How can we know the promises unless we are told them? And how can we cleanse ourselves unless we avail ourselves of the tool and manual which is given for this very purpose? It can't be done. You go to these charismatic churches where people go in, they never open the Bible. All they do is they say, come Holy Spirit, and they say a bunch of crazy sermons that are not based on this book, and they expect to be purified and cleansed and sanctified. We have to actively do something. We have to actively receive this word, and he passively fills us. I'm going to say this. I've said it many, many times in the past. We have all of the spirit that we will ever get the moment that we receive Jesus Christ. All. You will never get more of the spirit, but the spirit can get more of you. And here's the example for people that may be listening who don't understand what I'm saying. I married my wife 32 years ago, my poor wife. The fact is, though, I will never get more married and neither will she. But she can get more of me as I yield to her and I can get more of her as she yields to me. And that is how the spirit works in the Bible. It is passive in the Greek. It is not active. And so many people go to church expecting to be filled with the spirit actively and they make fools of themselves when this is how we receive the Spirit. And that's it. You're only going to get it through talking to the Lord, praying to the Lord, fellowshipping with Christians, reading this word, studying this word, and applying this word to your life. That is it. I do believe that the time is short, and we desperately need to use this book wisely. As a final note today, we need to remember who it was that was given charge of constructing these particular items. Bezalel. The name Bezalel, and I've explained this to you twice already. I want to do it again. It's made of three different parts. The L at the end means God. The B at the beginning signifies in. And the middle part comes from the noun cell, meaning shadow. And so his name means in the shadow of God. As shade is considered a protection in the Bible, such as from the heat of the sun, it is a metaphor for in the protection of God. Considering my friend Jeff, who I miss, I miss him every time I turn on Facebook and I see one of the friends that he hooked me up with. Considering him, 
He's passed on to the arms of Christ. We have no worries at all if his failings somehow separated him from God. Such is not the case. The true altar was designed by the Lord, and it was fashioned by he who dwells in the protection of God. If he died for Jeff, then Jeff was and is in that protection. And the same is true for each and every one of you who have called on Jesus. God has given us a place of safety and refuge from his wrath there in his shadow. It is Jesus Christ the Lord. Let us avail ourselves of that by coming to his cross and confessing our sins before him. And then Bezalel made the next piece, the bronze laver. Its purpose and use are behind my friend Jeff now, but for each of us, we have it available to us. If we consider and reflect upon those who have gone before us in various ways and in various states, maybe the Bible will have more meaning to us. I'd like to tell you something before I go on, is that uh, the guy that does the uh, artwork, every single sermon that I do, he does artwork. His name is Doug Callerson. He's over in Ireland. And he, on Saturday, will do an, a piece of artwork for the, the sermon. And something you probably don't know is that he will take a picture of it as he's going along doing this artwork. And he starts with just a blank piece of paper and just some scribbly little notes on it or, or lines. And he says, I'm getting started. And then he sends another one, and there's a couple more lines. And he says, it's coming along. And then he puts in a little color here and there, and he says, yeah, and he makes these comments to me, and he does this every week. And this week, he had a picture of a lady, and I could tell immediately it was a lady with a mirror in her hand. And there's a, a heap in front of her. And I knew what was going on. She's putting the mirror in the heap. She's giving what the Bible says. And I'm looking at each one. I'm opening them up. And I get to one, and all of a sudden, the light comes on. The Charlie. There is, in this pile, a picture of Christ's face. And that is exactly what we're seeing in this bronze laver. And that is what he was conveying to us when we see the, this artwork, is that we, first, Bezalel is making a picture of Christ. And so it's a perfect picture of what Bezalel was doing. But the second thing is that that mirror that she's putting in here is for us to look at ourselves and to see Jesus. He wants to see as much of himself in us as he can. Not just a guy that he saved and is on the way to the heavenly highway. He wants to see us reflected back in himself. In the Old Testament, he talks about refining silver, purifying it. And when he looks into that silver, he's not going to see us. He's going to see his reflection. And that's what we are to be, is picture, pictures of Christ walking around, living out lives which are holy. And this is the only way you're going to get that. I feel so sad for people to go to some of these churches on Sunday morning and they come home and they post on Facebook. First thing they do when they come home, oh, I'm so filled with the Spirit. God is so good. And Monday morning they post, why is God so mad at me? Why is this bad thing happening? And blah, blah. And it goes on all week long. And then they go back to Sunday, then the next Sunday, and they say, oh, I'm filled with the Spirit. And God is so good. And they never pick up this book, and they never read it, and they never understand that bad times come with good times, and we can actually be uplifted in bad times. Even when we're angry, even when we're having a bad day and we're sick, we can still be uplifted in Christ. And that is what this is being pictured in these beautiful implements that if we didn't do this study, if we just said we're going to go to the New Testament and talk about that, we'd never understand these things. And thank Doug Callerson for that marvelous thing, which by the third or fourth picture I sent him, I said, I think I see Christ in there. You know, I mean, it was so excited. My hair's standing up. Wonderful. My friend Jeff may have been able to endure the struggles of his own life a little better if he had more of the word in him during his low spells. It's incumbent on us to do our very best 
to fill ourselves now and always with this precious, marvelous treasure called the Holy Bible. In so doing, we can more easily face the many trials and woes that come our way. Life may be painful, but the word dwelling in our hearts will make it less so. Our walk may be filled with sorrows, but with the word open before our eyes, we can also find many comforts. Our days may be long and tedious, but when pondering the promises of the word, the time ahead takes on a new and an exciting meaning. Let us remember these things and thank God who has done so very much for us, all of which is reflected in these two beautiful pieces of handiwork which stood in the sanctuary and which were then used until they were no longer needed. The true altar and the true labor have come. Let us go to Christ that we may stand approved, justified, and sanctified before our glorious creator. And if anybody here has never called on Jesus Christ as Lord, if you've never said, I need what that guy is talking about there on YouTube or on Facebook or whatever, let me tell you how to do it. You have sin in your life and you need to get it out. Jesus Christ died without any sin in his. And he says, if you will believe that I died to take away your sin, I will do it. And he proved it by coming out of the grave. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus, I want your forgiveness. I believe that God did this and that he proved it by bringing you out of the grave and it is done. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a marvelous gift. Wonderful. Our closing verse today comes from Hebrews chapter 13. It's verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace... <clears throat> who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It doesn't say so that you can boast. It doesn't say that at all. It says that you can do what's pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. He did the work. We receive all the goodies. Give him the praise for it, right? Can anybody here say loud enough for me to hear hallelujah? hallelujah. Thank you. Next week is Exodus 38. It's verses 9 through 31. He is the one we are to fix our eyes toward. It's entitled the Always Evident Lord. That'll be our 102nd Exodus sermon. And I'll tell you as I do each week that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. And please read your Bible so that that becomes possible, okay? Our poem today is called Christ, Our Altar and Our Labor. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length, and five cubits it was wide. It was square, as is understood, and its height was three cubits, with the instructions he complied. He made its horns on its four altars, the horns were of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with bronze, thus he fashioned as the Lord did submit. He made all the utensils for the altar, the pans, the shovels, the basins working in his trade, the forks and the fire pans as well, all its utensils of bronze he made. And he made a grate of bronze network for the altar. Under its rim, midway from the bottom, his workmanship did not falter. He cast four rings for the four corners of the bronze grating, 
as holders for the poles. Here is where the altar and the poles were mating. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze from the directions. This was understood. Then he put the poles into the rings on the sides of the altar, the directions he did follow, with which to bear it, he made with boards the altar hollow. He made the laver of bronze and its base of bronze, as was called for, from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the tabernacle of meeting's door. Lord God, we thank you with all of our soul for what these things we have seen look forward to. We can have certainty that it is all under control and that every detail has been handled by you. Our destiny is secure. We stand justified because of Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed. Through his cross, we have been purified. Our pardon is purchased and we are brought back from the dead. And through your word, we can grow in sanctification and we will daily become more like you walking in holiness through the Spirit's ministration. This is what coming to your word will do. Help us, O Lord, to pursue Christ now and always. May our lives be a pleasing offering in your sight. Oh, for this to be true for all of our days, may we pursue Jesus with all of our might. And then in eternity's splendid glory, we will walk in your light for unending days. We shall behold the unfolding, never-ending story. And in that brilliant light, we shall give you eternal praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this marvelous, marvelous piece of furniture, actually two of them, the altar and the uh, bronze laver, which picture the coming Christ who would both justify us and sanctify us in your presence. And what an offer it is that we just simply reach out and say, I want what that pictures. I want Jesus. I want to be a part of his church. I want to know him more and more each and every day. I want to grow in holiness and I want to become more like you. Help me to do that, O oh God. How marvelous it is that we can do those things. Lord, you know all of the people out there that are struggling right now with their many trials and troubles and tribulations, just like Jeff did. And it was such an honor to talk to him. And he would pray for me, I'd pray for him. And I thank you for that fellowship we had. And I thank you that it's not over, that it's just temporarily put aside until we're in your presence and we can talk to each other for, forever, for all of eternity. Thank you for those things. And I would pray for comfort for his son, Justin, and for his family and friends who miss him, certainly very much. He was a nice gentleman. Lord, thank you for his memory. And we just thank you for all that you've done for each one of us. And we have our own people in our own lives that we miss. And if Jesus was a part of their lives, we know that we will be with them as well. How comforting that is. Certainly it is. Your word is just so beautiful to give us that comfort and that surety as we wait on that day. And may that day be soon. And we thank you for it. We thank you for those promises. And we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there Paul wrote these words for us. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamutzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed us as well. He would have said these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei pari hagafen. 
Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. I'm going to stop there. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. We do not want to reinsert the law where the law is complete. Please remember that. There's a movement going on in the church today which says we need to go back under the law. This is the new covenant in my blood. He died for us. New covenant. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. And while you're going by, after you take this, don't forget that we have those um, uh, Hershey's Kisses that one of the people that attends online brought for us, and so please enjoy them. <laughs> The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm saying take them. I'm not saying it's part of the... <laughs> the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dessert. Dessert. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome back. Thank you. the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this table that we can come to, and we can proclaim Christ's death until he comes. It's the death which allows us to be justified. It's the death which allows us to be sanctified. And we're waiting on the day which he comes again, which means that he is alive. He isn't coming again if he's dead, but he is alive. And praise God for that. We thank you for that hope we have, that sure hope that we possess. May he come and may it be soon. Amen. Amen. Amen.